What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to thank all of our amazing patrons who are supporting this podcast and all of our Academy members or Academates, as we like to call them, who keep this podcast on the road. We're so grateful for your support. And if you would like to join uh, our group of merry writers that support this podcast, you can simply pop over to support uh, support page, which is bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Or if you're interested in joining uh, the Academy and finding out more about getting coaching from Mark and I, pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mm. Mr. Stay, how are you, sir? I'm very good, sir. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I hear you had a Another trip to the big smoke this week. This is getting a bit regular now, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is actually. It is. Um, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I went. I, I mentioned this. Sorry to tease and to be so vague, but I have signed terribly scary documents about this. Um, but I yes, I went all the way to London to watch ten minutes of something <laughs> that that, they, that couldn't be sent online, couldn't be sent via any other secure method. I had to go into a room. Were you uh, blindfolded from the train station to the room? <laughs> yes, yes. And escorted yes, by two large they, they, people. They spun me round three times, and I had to pick up a, a thing from a dead letterbox, and then uh, they put a bag over my head. Yeah, it was. Um, it was kind of like that. And two people sat in the room with me. I wasn't left alone. Uh, Did you have to phone. leave your phone outside the room? Yes. <gasps> yes. They actually took your phone off you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, act, to be fair, it needed charging anyway, so I didn't mind. So I was oh, able to charge it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bonus. So my that was that was interesting. It was um, it was very good, what it was. Uh, so ask me again in about a year's time. Okay. Well, we'll just, we'll just keep that one under wraps then. Excellent stuff. Do you know, when you talk about, when you talk about that process of going into that place and having all those things removed it almost sounds like um going into a prison which is a nice link actually to a part hey. of the interview mm. later if you've ever not if you've ever wondered what it's like to go into a prison you'll be very interested in our author interview this this week absolutely fascinating stuff um and we also last week for people that, that missed the post chat um we talked about an incredible feat that one of our um supporters and patrons is doing um in may Yes, May the twelfth, Andrew Chapman, uh, who is going to try and write a novel in a day, basically. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be an amazing feat. Uh, he's already written the screenplay of it, so the story is already there. Uh, and what's wonderful is seeing the bestseller experiment community sort of rally round Andrew. So, um, for example, Julian Barr, a brilliant author who lives in Brisbane in Australia. 
uh, Julian's offered to sort of be his support cheerleader during the dark hours over here. Of course, it'd be, you know, middle of the day over in Australia to sort of cheer him on. Everyone's offering their support. So, yeah, it's happening on uh, May the 12th uh, through to Friday the 13th. Um, So, yeah, yeah, go for it, Andrew. It's It's going to be be fascinating. And we should actually say people that haven't heard about this um, incredible experiment that Andrew's doing. Um, Obviously, we, we kind of jokingly talked about it a few weeks ago and then naturally there's already some, always someone out there that's going to take the gauntlet and run with it but um, it's fascinating that this is not a short story folks this is a 50,000 word novel in one day so if you want to see how that goes we're going to be checking in um, you know um, finding out how it goes over the next couple of weeks absolutely I mean, it's going to be it, fascinating it, it, it t- it took us six months to write a 50,000-word outline, didn't it? Well, yeah, and that's two of us. And that's two of us. Absolutely. Crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Wow, that's great. And, um, yeah, I mean, how's – so So I I had a conversation the other day with my kids, and they said, Dad, it feels like it feels like COVID's just, just gone away now. And it – did you – have you had that moment yet where you actually stand back and you think – this actually feels like normal life again because it over in here in Canada, I mean, I don't know what it's like in the UK right now, but it really feels like we're, we're back to normal. We're in a weird situation where we've got really high infection rates, but everyone's pretending it's not happening. (laughs) It's a, it's, it's a weird limbo at the moment, but yeah, things, things are normal, but they're not normal, but that's the British way, isn't it? You know, during the blitz, Everyone carried on as normal, even though there were <laughs> exactly. sandbags everywhere and windows taped up. And it's like, well, we're still going to, you know, put the kettle on and have a cup of tea. Uh, I'm not sure about the wisdom of that in a pandemic. But, you know, yeah, it, it, it is and it isn't. Um, you know, I mean, I went to I went to a brilliant event this week. I went to see um, Michelle Paver at Waterstones Canterbury, uh, who was in episode 13 of this podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to listen to that. Um, absolutely packed absolutely packed to the rafters and it was a really really wonderful event and it's one that had been delayed by two years because of covid uh and the room was you know full of readers of all ages and um you know everyone i think was just really excited to be there uh so and like i said i was at the london book fair i was at easter con you know there are more and more of these events happening uh i guess it's it's becoming sort of dealer's choice if you, you know, how rigorous you want to be with the masks and the hand washing and all of that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, there's, it's something like normal, but again, it varies all over. I might, I've got a friend who lives in Hong Kong and over there, it's so strict. It's so stringent. It's, yeah. you know, yeah, it's a completely different world over there. Do you know, we've been talking recently about bookshops on the podcast, people's favorite bookshops. And this weekend, I've, I'm having a day out. I'm going off to see a gig, little, little trip down the road, a couple of hours, going to see a, one of my favorite bands at the moment called Mother Mother, who are this, they, this tiny, they used to be a small band kind of, I say small, they were very well known in Canada. They've blown up on TikTok and gone worldwide now, but mm. uh, seeing them on Saturday night, but um as, a, as an excuse, really, to go down to Victoria, which is the, the, the capital of BC, where there are two amazing bookstores. So the whole day is going to be, just be spent doing a little book shop nice. tour, one of my favourite things in the world. Um, 
I just, I just love it. I just love. So I'll report back on because these are kind of real old antiquate kind of bookstores. Which brilliant. Well, we've got, a, we've got more customers and more customers, more listeners rather, <laughs> are sending us in stories of their favourite bookstores. So hang around for the social media bit at the end. We'll talk about those as a couple of corkers. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Now earlier we did, we did talk about our guest this week, uh, who, who talks about in this interview the most incredible experience she had in prison. Um, so Mark, tell us about our, tell us about our guest this week. Rachel Block. Well, Rachel Block is the best-selling author of the UK crime series set in the cathedral city of St Albans. And here, her character, DCI Martin Janssen, struggles against his plain-speaking Dutch upbringing when faced with the seemingly polite world of this picturesque city. And Rachel was great fun. We discussed great openings, following her characters, and why writing to please yourself will help you find your voice. And, of course, how she ended up in prison. Brilliant. Well, let's listen to Mark interviewing the most lovely and very daring Rachel Block. Rachel Block, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. I'm very excited to talk about your new book, The Fall, which opens and <laughs> opens with someone at the top of St Albans Cathedral. It and- does, yeah. It really captures that kind of vertiginous feel. I, I have acrophobia, so I get that oh, thing. Really? When I go up somewhere tall, I get this lizard brain urge to jump off, which is <laughs> well, not healthy. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't. I won't. Um, but what you you really really capture that that kind of feeling when you're on the tiles, when you're when when you know you're in a precarious position, and then you get. It's not a spoiler because it's it's in the description of the book. Someone le- leaps off into the empty air and you capture that so brilliantly. It's so vivid. It's terrifying. It's really gripping. <laughs> Where did that come from? Were you the sort of child who jumped off roofs uh, when in your youth? <laughs> no, I've never been that brave. Not at all. No, I I think with the with the kind of writing, it's always a challenge, isn't it, to open the novel in a new way and a kind of interesting way. And I started a novel. The last one I wrote was a plane and uh, helicopter crash with right. a group of kind of glamorous celebrities and politicians, and I smashed it into the ground. And I thought, how <laughs> do I follow that? So, yeah, with the St Albans Cathedral being the focus of the kind of the main location of the novel, I thought the only way is down. So, <laughs> And the cover as well. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, folks, you can see the cover behind uh, Rachel on her bookshelf. Uh, it's Even that has a vertiginous feel to it as well. So it's um, it's brilliantly done. But tell us, this is, I believe, the fourth uh, DCI Martin Janssen uh, book. Tell us about Martin, because it, uh, Martin is a Dutch DCI living in the very beautiful historic cathedral city of St Albans. Tell us about Martin. So when I wrote my first novel, I was a kind of, you know, I was dabbling and I was desperately hoping one day the novel would be published. But I was doing the write what you know. And I was writing about this mum who just had babies and she was feeling claustrophobic. And I had her walking down to this lake in the middle of the night in the dead of snow. Um, and there had been a body discovered. It was so claustrophobic. It was the most claustrophobic piece of writing, I think, looking back on it. So what I knew I needed something else. And at the time I was doing a course, the Curtis Brown writing course, and um, it was my turn to read the following week. And you have to submit 3,000 words. So I thought, I need my detective. I need a kind of a distant opinion, someone who's outside of St Albans, someone who can be the reader, who can come in and not understand the local kind of the manners and the kind of lovely middle-class society. 
Um, and so my husband is half Dutch. My father-in-law is Dutch. We spent a lot of time in Holland. And I thought, what I need is a straight talking Dutchman at this moment. <laughs> I need someone who can come in, who can look around and can assess things for how they are. And so I got my claustrophobic kind of woman who was running around and feeling that, you know, the baby kind of sent her insane in the change of routine. But I also had my sensible other kind of third party kind of viewpoint. That must have been a wonderful eureka moment for you, just thinking, great, I've got a straight talking Dutchman that I can throw into this kind of very middle class, very, you know, because, you know, it's like you've got the, the twitching curtains. It's all nice. There's a nice sheen to it, but there's, you know, you pick at it long enough, there's there's murder and betrayal and all sorts of fun stuff. So that's, um, you must have been overjoyed when you when you came up with that. I think so. And I think part of the reason was that once I had him, I knew I had my novel. And for somebody who'd never been published, feeling that you actually had something that could actually really become a novel was just the most exciting thing. Um, and when I actually sent the novel off to find an agent, you know, that kind of very tentative, nerve wracking, it's almost like dating. You're checking your email kind of like 30 times a day and reading every email twice and wondering what it means. And um and she sat me down and she said, I love Martin Janssen. And I was like, oh, thank God for that, because so do I. <laughs> and that was it. And she said, we see this as a two book um, deal when we, you know, when we go out and we kind of um, submit it to publishers. We want to submit it as two books. Can you write another book with Martin Janssen? And again, those words, how nice are those words to hear for somebody <laughs> who's never had anything? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have at least one, if not two more books in me for Martin Janssen. So yeah, it was lovely. That's great because they, they the books all work as standalones, but Martin is the focus of each one. Yeah. Your four books in now, is he starting to change as a, as a person? Is he starting to evolve? Is he revealing more to you as the more the more you write? So I think what's really nice about writing one character who appears um, four different times is that you can focus on a slightly different aspect of his life. So what I don't do, I don't have some horrific backstory for him. He hasn't lost a leg in a war and he's not a kind of an alcoholic and he hasn't had three affairs in the first novel that you need to remember. He is married with two children and that bit stays the same, but I get to peek into other parts of his life. So in the second novel, his wife, and again, it's not a huge spoiler because it happens quite kind of quite close to the start. His wife has a car accident and he has to deal with the, you know, the stress and the tension of that whilst the case is going on. And it makes him remember um, a car accident his own parents died in when he was quite young so as he's kind of unraveling the case and dealing with his wife in hospital, he's also coming to terms with the childhood loss of his own parents. So, you know, it's really lovely to write and it was really nice to explore grief from all of the different angles, all of the different characters. Um, and then I don't mention it again in any of the other novels. The rest of them are allowed to peek into a different aspect of his life and none of it needs to carry over. So it's, it's, quite, an, it's quite nice and it's not too tying. That's fascinating. It's, uh, you know, because if you work in, say, an office environment, you don't walk into the office and say, as you know, Rachel, when I was, you know, bereaved of this and this and when I lost my leg and when, you know, so he's not carrying that baggage with him in, in the day to, day to day. But you're also, you're not hitting that reset button, which can yes. feel a little dated now. You're sort of, yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, And it's set in St Albans, which, and now I live not too far from Canterbury and I think that the two, 
you know, the yeah. cathedral towns. We're both on Watling Street. We've got a lot of history, brimming with history, Roman oh, yeah. history in, in particular. What was the what was the attraction of, of St Albans as a location? So I grew up in Durham, um, which is another kind of similar to Canterbury, kind of big cobbled cathedral town. Um, and it's beautiful and it has kind of lots and lots of history. And at the same time, having grown up in Durham, I've seen a lot of the darker side, the kind of the Saturday nights and the taxi queue, pub fights and all of the stuff that goes on in those kind of town and gown cities where you have real tension in locals sometimes with a certain, you know, another, another set in the town. And so what I really liked um, about having another cathedral town is that underlying tension that when you're visiting a kind of a beautiful Roman city and it's got walls and murals and this cathedral, which has got, it's got the longest nave um, in England. It's got the oldest church tower. It's absolutely spectacular. But it's also a really great place to bury bodies <laughs> and kind of really get rid of an underbelly. Because we all want an underbelly, don't we? When we're reading our books and we're kind of relaxing and we're having a cup of tea, we want to kind of have that kind of thrills and spills of the darker side of life. I think that's why we like crime. <laughs> why do you think that is? Is, 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 <laughs> is, it, is it simply because... If it's on the page, we can make sense of it. We, there's an order to it. The storytelling gives us a beginning, middle and end. Do you think that's it? Yeah, I think it's the way, it weighs sometimes processing your fears, maybe. If I was going to kind of like really talk it up, you know, it's quite a nice cathartic way sometimes to work through your kind of darker fears. But I also think it's a little bit like going on a roller coaster. It's kind of thrills and spills, but you've got your seatbelt on. You're completely mm-hmm. safe, like nothing bad is going to happen to you. And it's also a puzzle. Like I love crime novels. I grew up reading kind of Agatha Christie and Ruth Rendell. And I love that process of having a set of suspects and kind of really trying to work out the clues. And I try and do that in all of my novels. I love having a set of suspects and kind of leaving clues out. And some people get them and some people don't get them, but it's the process as well. So it's, I think it's like that dark roller coaster ride plus like a nice kind of Saturday morning puzzle. It's just, it's, I think it ticks all the boxes. Brilliant. I, let's talk about your process because I, I saw a quote from you that said, I'm constantly surprised how differently stories turn out on paper than in their original planning fiction has a life of its own and we see this this kind of divide between plotters and pantsers where 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 do you sit in that whole uh scheme of things are you someone who outlines rigorously or do you discover it as you go along so i have told my editor for my last novel that i am outlining regular i can't even say the word rigorously I've actually sent her a detailed plan of chapter by chapter breakdown. And what I haven't told her is that I am about a third of the way through and three significant things now. Suddenly they're just not going to happen because something else is happening. (laughs) Somebody else is having a relationship with somebody else because actually that's what was happening on the page. So I can try really, really hard. And I want to be somebody who sits down and literally kind of type that. I've got writer friends and they literally type out the chapters after they plan them in detail. And I wish I could do that. But mm. I just get to know the character and suddenly the character is doing their own thing. Yeah. And it's not some kind of strange, you know, speaking in tongues, but you just follow your character and you follow your story. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I cannot rein them in. And suddenly something is happening. I'm like, yes, absolutely. This is definitely what's happening. And that's just the way of things. So 
when I tell my editor, <laughs> it's already <laughs> quite different. I'm hoping she just won't mind, but um, I don't, don't think I've got it in me to follow a really detailed plan. I don't think I could do it. My my process has evolved. I should be a big outliner, but now for me, it is much more about just getting to know the characters as you go along. And as you say, as, as you get to know them, you think, well, they, they wouldn't do that thing I've tried to make them do. They're going to do this thing that feels natural in the moment right now. I think as long as you have an ending, as long as you have some idea of where the finish line is, that that feels a lot more comfortable to me. Do you have a good idea of, of the ending? Or Because I heard somewhere Agatha Christie does a thing where she got to the penultimate chapter and she still hadn't figured out who'd done it. Mm. And then she went back and made chat. Is that your process? I usually know. So sometimes I've even written the ending first, not in its kind right. of finished, polished version, but I've written out the last chapter. So I know exactly where I'm going. It's that kind of swathe of water in between, you know, you're setting off, off kind of on your boat and you know where you're heading to. You just kind of kind of navigate your way there, haven't you? Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that for me is the hardest part. When I get to around 40,000 words, I am, I'm kind of at that point, I put it down and I reread the first section. I've often deleted like 10, 15,000 words, but because that's the bit where I really need to kind of grab hold of it because it will run away with me then. So you're in, you're in very good company. I think Michael Connolly told us he does exactly the same thing. He gets about 30,000, 40,000 words in, rereads it, and then I think he's been working with the characters long enough to figure out who they are yeah. and what the motives are and what might be happening next, and then he goes back, makes some changes, and then off he goes again. So that's that's absolutely fascinating. You're in very good company there. Excellent stuff. <laughs> now, you started out, um, you were a teacher before you were a writer, and you were teaching yeah. English, I believe. I was, um, yeah. Is is it true? I suspected when I was growing up that all my teachers were frustrated poets and, and novelists. Is was was that the case with you? I think all English teachers secretly want to write a book. They just they're just too busy to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I dabbled. Like I had a go at writing a kids' book in my twenties, and I didn't get very far. And then I had it summer holidays one year. I, I didn't have much on. I had another go at something else. Um, and it wasn't really until I was on maternity leave and I was going completely bonkers in a London flat, uh, kind of surrounded by, you know, all the usual stuff like nappies and daytime routines and feeding times and sleeping times. And my husband was jetting off, literally jetting off around the world quite a lot because that was part of his job back there, not at the moment. But um, and I just really felt like I needed something for me. And I thought mm. I didn't even care if it was published. I didn't care where it was going. I just started to write the story and it wasn't my story because I've never killed anyone. You know, I don't hide bodies. That's not how I spend my spare time. (laughs) But I was writing about this mum who was kind of lost in this fog of new routine and new people. And it's been done. There's lots and lots of novels about mums. And I think because it's such a really significant part of your life and it's such a huge change. Um, but I went down my crime route with it. So there was a body in a lake and this woman was waking near this, near the lake in the middle of the night and she was sleepwalking and she didn't know why. And she was hearing voices. Was she going mad? Was she being haunted? And it was this whole kind of brilliant, it was this brilliant escape for me. And I just loved it. And I wrote so much of it. And then by the time, obviously a couple of years down the line, the kids were at school I signed up to do a course and I think that's the thing that took it from the private scribbling to kind of the public reading you know that moment where you think okay yeah somebody else can read this yeah. because 
for the, the novel I'm writing at the moment, no one's allowed to look at it right now. Mm. Oh, <laughs> no yeah, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's that moment, isn't there, where you just know that you need an external kind of viewpoint on things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the first draft is always dirty laundry. No one's ever, no one's ever, ever getting anywhere near that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to something you said, where you said that you didn't, when you started, that you didn't care if it was going to be published. And I think there are a lot of writers out there thinking, well, I have to write. Maybe I need to write like Richard Osman. Maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to write like this in order to get published. And they're trying to please other people. Was it? Was there something freeing in just thinking I'm doing this for myself? Yeah, I did. If if you'd asked me if I would ever be published, I would have said absolutely not. No way. There's no way I'm getting this published. So it was lovely just to be able to write. But wanting to be published was the thing that obviously drives you on. But I think that 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 kind of desire to be published is is a secret private desire. Um, and you need to get to know your own voice, don't you? Because yes. as commercial as the books need to be, unless you know what you can put on the table that is you and not some kind of, like you say, some kind of attempted a copy of a really successful novel, then actually it's much harder to get published because what the publisher wants is your own voice. And the danger of getting swept up in all the bestsellers of the day is that you won't find it. So it's a tricky balance, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. But you, like I say, you... You get that advice, write what you know. So you're writing about a mother who's at home with her first baby. Was that key to finding your voice, to finding a, a kind of a narrative voice? Did that really, really help? It was because I didn't need to think about the content. I think that's mm. the thing. When I was writing how she felt about losing her job, or not losing, but you know, stepping away from the person she'd been for the last 10, 15 years, then I understood exactly the situation I was writing. I didn't need to research it. So I was able just to write it. Um, and then in later novels, when I've taken massive amounts of research, I went to prison, for example, for the second novel, and that was completely alien. But by then I felt like I had the skills to turn the research into something that felt like it was coming from me. I think it's quite hard the first time you write. I think that's why so many novels, um, the, you know, the first novel for any author is often a little bit of a peek into kind of who they are maybe, because mm. I think the easiest way to tap into your own style is to tap into you a little bit. I might be kind of be sweeping, might not be the case for lots of people. I know Martin Amos said that once. He said, if you read anyone's kind of first novel, you'll find out quite a lot about the author. Mm. And now I don't need to do that. Like now I write stories, um, which in a way is freeing as well. But the first time, yeah, it was mainly about my stress and my kind of frustration because all the love that goes along with the babies, there's so much work and sleeplessness and all the normal things. We know we all know about it, but yeah. I just, I just want to go back to something you're saying about going to prison. I, I just <laughs> want to clarify that was for research, but you didn't rob a bank or anything. That's, that's going to extremes. So, no, hands on heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you discover uh, when you were doing that? I mean, that's that's um, that's something very few of us get to do. Uh, going to a prison was it was it full of? Because we know we think we know prisons through TV and movies and stuff like that. What were the big surprises? Oh, I mean everything. Seriously, the first few scenes I wrote, I knew I had a character in prison, and before I went, I was still writing because I still needed to kind of sketch out the novel. And I thought I'll go back to those scenes. I just basically plot them out. 
it was honestly, I'd seen Porridge and I'd seen The Wire. <laughs> and those were my two. <laughs> nothing. It's just nothing like that. And I went along and I was kind of, I had, I've gone really smart, but, you know, I had no makeup on. I was kind of really like dour because it was a male prison and I had these visions of, oh, I don't even know what I thought, to be honest, but I kind of went really stern. And, um, and there was all these gorgeous prison wardens, all these beautiful women, like fully made up. It was in the Northeast. And they were, honestly, it was like a Saturday night out. And I thought, God, <laughs> they're probably looking at me and thinking, who's she? But I was kind of like walking around looking really serious. And then um, I went to the confiscated weapons um, room. I had this really amazing officer, um, Officer Kevin James took me around. It's very kind of him. And he, the main hour when I was actually in the cells, um, they're all on lockdown. So for all the prison officers to go and have their lunch, everyone's locked down for this kind of one hour. Right. So that's when he could took me. So he gave up his lunch hour and he took me kind of into the actual cells. And I saw the confiscated weapons. It's stuff like tuna fish in a sock. Um, and they sling it round and they and they make their own knives with, I showed, he showed them to me. And to be honest, I don't think I could put one together now, but they make all of these weapons that you wouldn't imagine, you know, if you're just looking at them on a shopping list of weapons and they managed to put them together and they use them in the showers and they use them in, in the games rooms and the chapel as well. There's an all faiths chapel. And he said, that's where they have the most riots because <sighs> it's a mass congregation. Yeah. Um, and there's all these things that I never thought about. So there has to be three officers for every one prisoner if there's a massive fight. But there's been huge cuts in like the last 10 years. So if yeah. something's kicking off, they literally have to wait. They have to leave them in there until they've got like enough officers. And sometimes they're coming from another prison. Um, but he said like the most important thing if you're a prison officer is to protect the other prison officers. Yeah. And he's been to hospital, Kevin James, three times he was telling me because of how badly injured he's been. And it's just, the it's like this world and everyone when I was in there was locked down and they were shouting out at me through the, um, the they have like the doors with the yeah. things up. And we've all seen Silence of the Lambs. So, you know, kind of the worst case scenarios in your head and it wasn't like that at all. They were commenting on my clothes. Who's that lass in that stupid jacket? Shouting <laughs> at me as I, was, as I was walking down. And I did think I should have worn something nicer. But obviously that's that's your worst fear in a prison. You're okay. But he took me into the cells and he took me into one that was ready for someone. Um, and they have the loo, they have the sink, they have the bed. Everything's in there. There's no kind of secret room or anything. It's really basic. And then he took me into a cell that had recently been trashed by a cellmate who right. basically like, you know, lost his, lost his temper. Um, and it was awful. So the toilet had been pulled off the wall. The sink had been pulled off the wall. The bed was upturned. There was stuff all over the walls, the smell, and it was summer. And I honestly thought I was going to be sick. Mm. I thought this, you know, this is why I'm here because yeah. I couldn't have done any of this. And I do cover quite a few kind of prison fight scenes because the prison story, it's in Scorched Earth, is quite brutal. Mm. Um, it's supposed to be brutal. And I mean, thank goodness for Kevin James because I don't think I could have pulled it off if I hadn't had that day. That's extraordinary. That's amazing stuff. And why we do research the way that we do. Fantastic. What's coming next, Rachel? Are we going to see, uh, we will see Martin uh, Janssen returning? So Martin Janssen 
is having a sabbatical, I think, because my next novel that I'm halfway through is a standalone and it's set on a cruise ship. Um, And it's from an entirely different point of view, an entirely different area of the world. So it's a bit of a treat. It's a bit of a day out for me. Um, I'm writing about, you know, kind of fun stuff that I've really wanted to write about. So it's still crime, it's still, but it's more psychological than procedural. Um, and it's a real treat. I'm really enjoying writing it, actually. Um, after four year, four books, it's been lovely, but it is genuinely nice to have kind of a fresh challenge. Absolutely. And will you be going on a – I mean, you've been to prison. You've seen, you know, the dark side of the prison. Will you be going on a nice cruise anytime soon? Uh, I, I've done two, Mark. Excellent. Um, <laughs> I did one, one two weeks ago when I caught COVID. So oh, I had gosh. a cruise for 30 hours and then I was moved by two people in hazmat suits to the quarantine deck and I didn't see another soul for another 36 hours. Oh, so, gosh. yeah, I got quite a lot of writing done, but it wasn't the luxury cruise of my dreams. Oh, no. Oh, well, hopefully, hopefully you can have your luxury cruise of your dreams very, very soon. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for speaking to us today. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, folks, the fall is out there now uh read it if you are scared of heights because it is cathartic it's generally you can sit it on the ground floor of your house with your bum firmly planted in a comfy chair and enjoy it from the comfort and safety of, of there so uh, rachel thank you so much and hope to speak to you again soon thank you for having me oh that's absolutely fantastic now what isn't it absolutely amazing isn't it absolutely amazing i mean i want to talk i want to talk into this prison bit but but you mentioned, Mark, as well, that something happened after this interview, which was really fascinating. Yes. Well, Rachel invited me to a launch party. It was really lovely. She, you know, I, she got in touch, said, you know, great to chat. I'm having a launch party in a few days. Do you want to come? Do you want to come along? And it just so happened that that was a day that I was going to London. I was meeting the author of S. Khan, uh, again, former podcast guest. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to have a listen. Aves uh, and I spent the day in London, and uh, we ended it going to a launch. And this was. I think the first launch – I've been to book events, but I haven't been to a launch party. And this was in a bar. This was above a pub, so it wasn't in a bookshop for – I can't remember because at least two and a half, maybe even three years. And it was great. There was a real buzz, a genuine buzz, because I have tinnitus, which has actually got – they say it gets worse after COVID, so I've got it quite bad now, actually. So wow. uh, Plus, you know, a childhood listening to Floyd and Zeppelin on crappy <laughs> – Walkman headphones uh, yeah. too loud a, le- a level. It, 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 your parents were right, kids. It will make you go yeah. deaf. Yeah. Um, so, of course, you know, when you've got a crowded room like that, I haven't been in a crowded room like that for so long. I was finding it difficult to hear what people were saying. So I was being introduced to lots of lovely authors, and one of them said her name, and I didn't quite hear it, and I leaned forward and was about to ask her... <laughs> to repeat her name but she thought i was leaning in for a cheek kiss and she went to, and she and i went oh no 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 sorry sorry i i can't hear i'm, I'm mutton jeff you know I, sorry. Oh. <laughs> so all those social things because i thought the kissy cheek thing i thought covid oh, would be the that, end of that because right. it's you know but apparently we're going back to i'm deeply uncomfortable with it i don't like doing oh, it you know that's i just brilliant. it's it's <laughs> So I sort of angled my head to her. Oh, sorry, could you repeat that? And she and she just and we'd never met before. It's not like we knew each other, and, wow. and we never. Well, maybe she knew no. you, Mark. Maybe she's a fan of the podcast, <laughs> and she's been. She was she was there for a reason, and it wasn't Rachel. <laughs> Stop. Uh, actually, oh. what was what was what was lovely? So many fans of the podcast there. 
like really? authors. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like five or six of them, Sam. When can we come on? Um, oh, so, uh, yeah, that was genuine. I don't think they were just saying it either. I think they meant it. The, really? I think they meant it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was really stuff. nice. So it was at Rachel's launch party. She shared it with the author Harriet Tice. So it was two authors having a launch together. So Harriet was launching her book, It Ends at Midnight. Aves Khan came with me. Now, Aves, he's over from Pakistan, right? So he's been in Pakistan for years, came over... Everyone knew who he was. Aves is the best networker ever. I mean, we could all learn lessons from it. He just went in there. Everyone knew him. It's brilliant. Um, So, yeah, it was great. It was nice to go to a party. I might have to get hearing aids. And, uh, yeah, it was good. (laughs) Do you know what, though? It's funny you mention that thing about tinnitus or tinnitus or there's three other million yes. ways of saying yeah. it. Yeah, I think, I, I think I, tinnitus is how it's supposed to be pronounced. But yeah, yeah, I've always called it tinnitus, but I could never actually hear the proper no. pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> and I can joke about it because I've got it. <laughs> well, I can joke about it as well because I've got it as well, Mark. And I think, yeah. and I, I always thought, oh, it's because, you know, all those very large speakers that I stood in front of at gigs. And I did get a lot of ringing ears when I was younger. Mm. But I do think... You're onto something. I think it is something linked with COVID because I it has got so much worse. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think it's just our age. Um, I I and I because be. every single time I mention it to someone, they're like, "Oh yeah, me too." And I think I I, I wonder if I read an article. Is- I read an article about it. Uh, yeah, it's a po- it, apparently it's quite a common post-COVID thing that if you have it already. COVID has somehow it made it worse because amplifies it. Yeah, because one of the things with tinnitus tinnitus is. I think it's partly psychological or something to do with it. You know, there is damage to your ear, but there's also – it's something to do with the way the information gets from your brain to, you know, from your ear to the brain. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, something's been twisted in there. I'll be curious. If anyone of our listeners has, has suddenly had this big wake-up call and go, oh, my gosh, that's me as well, let us know because I just want to see just how – dominant this is because i thought i've been using a lot of headphones obviously when we do the podcast i do a lot of coaching during the week i use headphones a lot um i do headphones when i'm chatting with people on you know just on on social media whatever and i thought it was the um these headphones which kind of um a noise cancellation i thought oh because they seem way worse after wearing those and i don't know if it's because it's doing something mad with tinnitus (laughs) and it's not good anyway we digress i think one of the really interesting things that rachel mentioned was was about her trip to prison and Mm. when she mentioned that it was brilliant because i've actually had that experience as well not not have you i have and and i'm not from not from researching a novel which would have been fascinating but i went and coached um people in a high security prison we're talking I, I had a room full of um inmates who were i didn't ask what you know people had done but i talked to a few of them afterwards and heard some quite incredible uh stories oh, I but bet. i got i got the opportunity to go in and do my thing and it was it was fascinating absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. but going through all of those stages of security was something i experienced as well and it's um and meeting some of the prison guards there was amazing but how fantastic that Rachel actually decided I'm going to go in there and research this because I think most yeah. authors would just think, oh, there's no chance you'd ever get get into a prison. But she must have she she obviously asked the question and they said yes. I mean that's that's absolutely the ultimate in research, isn't it? Well, well, first of all, the she she has the awareness of knowing that her knowledge of prison is from porridge and the wire. Now, uh, folks outside the UK, porridge 
one of the best sitcoms ever written about prison life in the 1970s. So it's hardly up to date. And of course, it was a comedy as well. The Wire, okay, a bit more gritty, but that's very US. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's that thing of knowing, I know a little about this. But a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I need to find out the truth of it, and then to you know to 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 boldly go into pis- prison and and um, and have people shout things like "Who's that lass in that stupid jacket?" <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but she said it's the stuff that you can never imagine: the tuna mm. fish in a sock as a weapon. You know, riots in the chapel. It's uh, you will come away with really really interesting stuff, but also. As you discovered when you would have spoken to these people, you discover the truth about these things. You discover that it's not just what you hear in the papers or in or the documentary. These people have stories to tell, uh, and it, there's there's a truth to that. That um, if you can tell their story in a different way that isn't the usual stereotypes or cliches, then I think that's um, that's a really really great thing, mm. and uh, I think it's definitely. Definitely worth doing, if, even if it must be a bit scary. When I was when I was there doing a doing a seminar, I remember one particular chap in the front row. And you know when you're doing a speech and you know that somebody's really engaged, and you just yeah, you yeah. just they're they're literally hanging off every word you're saying. And he was he was probably in his early twenties. Um, and I got to chat with him afterwards, and I learned one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned about humanity in this one conversation. It was amazing. Um. He he was basically saying, "Oh, can you come back? Can you please?" You know, he was he really for him it was such an important moment in his life, and I really hope that whatever I talked about on that day helped him because I I know that he was so engaged. And I then asked him about his story because one thing I learned years ago when I worked uh, volunteered at homeless shelters, I'd always engage with people and ask about their stories and, and get chatting yeah. with them and find out how they ended up in the homeless shelter. So in this particular situation, I was really curious as to how this young guy who seemed so bright and intelligent and so switched on, you know, ended up in prison. And, you know, when you start to delve, and we talked about this last week about talking to people and, and going a bit mm-hmm. deeper and asking them yep. what's happened in their life because there's stories everywhere. And this one chap said that he was at a private school when he was 14 um, his dad was, I won't go into too much detail, obviously, for, for yeah, confidential yeah, yeah. reasons, but his dad was away a lot on on, on do with his job um, and came to visit him one day in school um, with his two sisters. And on the way to the school, they died in a car crash. Um, and then a year later, his mother committed suicide because of the loss of all of her family. So this poor kid at 15 was left without family and and then he said that what what then happened next is obviously he went through an incredibly challenging time and got in with the wrong people ended up in a gang started shoplifting and stealing things mainly out of desperation and that's how he ended up in prison and when i heard this guy's story it reminded me to always look at every single person that we might see on the street or somebody might we might meet who's in a really bad way and before we judge them, always learn what yeah. their story is because you'll, I, I promise you, you'll always find something in their life. And, and yeah, he, he admitted, I made some bad choices. I made some bad, you know, he, he, he owned that. And he said, I'm in prison because of some bad choices I made. But I thought to myself, yeah, but you're also, you've also been dealt some incredibly bad cards from oh, a very God, early age yeah. in life. And so I just, just to like remind people out there, firstly, as from an author's perspective, 
these kind of stories are real. You know, there's, there's, you know, we think of fiction, but this is stuff that's out there and, 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 and there to be uncovered when we have conversations with people. But also it always reminds me to always stop and not judge people until mm. I really, well, just not judge people anyway, right? Because everyone's yeah, yeah, yeah. going through their own challenges. Like, like, yes, but, exactly. Yeah. But, but to, to kind of try to understand their story, to, to, to gain some empathy about why their life has become what it has. And then in some way, try to support them through it. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. So I had, it was one of the most profound experiences I had and it was, and it was in prison. So mm. you just, you just don't know what you'll, what you'll discover when you go off on these kind of opportunities that you might get to research things. Mm. Absolutely. It's also worth noting that previous guest, Martina Cole, regularly teaches creative writing or gives talks about creative writing in prisons as well. So it's um, very often you'll find, you know, folk in prison have amazing stories to tell, but don't necessarily have either the skills or have ever had anyone do that thing, which we talk about all the time, just have someone tap them on the shoulder and say, you've got a great story, you should tell the story. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got a fascinating story. And it's, um, I think it's brilliant that she does that because she, I think she's helped. In, we, we talk about writing as therapy and, and this idea, that, you know, putting, putting your thoughts on the page is one way of making sense of, of, you know, the, the chaos of life. And I think getting folk to sit down and write and think about, you know, the, the things that have happened to them in their lives and to make some sense of them, that can, that can only be a good thing. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, when you think about it as well, if, if there are opportunities like that for people, you know, in prison, then, you know, it can actually help prevent the riots in the oh, chapel. And I mean, yeah, it, you know, absolutely. You, it, that's their outlet. Ultimately, that's where the frustration, I mean, mm. this might, this week on our life coaching on the Academy, um, you know, we had a question about, you know, somebody struggling with a lot of things going on in their life and, and they mm. just lost the motivation and the will to write because mm. there are so many struggles in their day-to-day -day life. And and really the kind of discussion went along the lines of, you sh if, if you're struggling with something, write it out, like literally use your writing as a way of releasing some of those emotions. We do a lot of this, a lot of stuff around mm. mental health and, you know, well-being in the academy as well. So it's a really... You know, allow, allowing people, giving people a gift of writing, um, mm. which is, I guess, why we're so passionate about this podcast and the 200 Boy Challenge. And because yep. yep. we know that there's something much bigger going on. It's not just a book that comes out at the end of it, it's the journey and the experience you go through as a writer, which heals you, helps you, uh, challenges you, makes you feel incredibly amazing about what you've achieved. There's so much more going on and that's long may we continue to kind of like delve and discover into that part of writing. Cause that, that fascinates me. And, and Rachel really kind of, you know, it's given us an, an, an insight into that world where um, there's so many other things that we don't see on TV. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It also ties into something she said, uh, which is that the first novel your first novel is often gives some sort of insight into who you really are mm. because you put a lot of yourself into that first novel because of the write what you know kind of mantra. Uh, so, you know, it, it, that, that first novel can, can be quite revealing because it's your first attempt to put yourself on the page and find your voice on the page. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting. It's some... Um, I, it wasn't my first. It was my first play. My first play was about my family and going on mm. camping trips. But it was actually all about the dynamic between. I was basically playing my dad, 
which he knew and threatened to sue me. Um, <laughs> so, but it was uh, it was interesting. It was it was very cathartic and weirdly. Ever since we've all got on like a house on fire, it's just oh, we all know who we all are now. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that 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 first play was definitely me bearing my soul yeah. far cheaper than group therapy right yeah yeah, yeah 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 well it, it does remind me though that yeah, she made a few quid <laughs> there you go goodness me there's an idea there's an idea but here's yeah what where, what can you i mean in what other profession can you kind of get therapy and work on well-being and, and get paid for it i mean i think that's that's a fantastic like a flag to fly as a writer but it, it, it does make me realize that writing it, it's a, a journey of discovery Every single book that you write, you're discovering more about yourself, more about how you see the world, more about the things you didn't realize about the world, the things, you know, as you go deeper into character, so much of it is self-reflective. I mean, I find when I coach, and I think anyone who coaches will agree with me, when you coach, it's also a self-reflection. You know, when you're saying to people, oh, yeah, you should, um, you know, to really focus on time management and, and pick the most important thing. And whatever you coach in, you're always having to throw, you know, you have to throw back yourself and say, yeah, are you, how well are you doing that, Mark? <laughs> you know, are you, are you managing to do that? And so I think when you, when, you, when you work through your characters and you put a bit of yourself in, you're also giving yourself an opportunity to hold the mirror up and, 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 and check in with where you're at, check in with where you, how you see the world and what's important to you. Um, so mm. there's all of that side of stuff. So it's definitely a journey of discovery. So mm. um, I think it's, yeah, if, if, if we could fully explore that within our lifetime, we still, I don't think, would even start to reveal only a small portion of it. So and another thing that Rachel mentioned as well is she said, she, she mentioned about this writing the ending first as well, which... I I've heard that a lot. Um, and I really like that idea. I really like that idea that you're actually kind of setting your final destination point, even though you don't know quite know how to get, you know, you might not know the route to get there, but if we all go on a journey, there's always an end point, even if it's returning back to where we started, like in the alchemist, but how many times do you think, have you ever tried to do that yourself? Have you ever tried to write an ending before you actually start the book? Uh, it's, it's the only way I can work now. Actually, it's um, I I can't start until I know what the ending is, and then hmm. I sort of work back from that. And I'm in the thick of it at the moment. I'm sort of twenty five thousand words into the first draft of Woodville Number Four, uh, and I know how I want it to end. And uh, as Rachel said, she's doing that thing that Michael Conley talked about as well, which is where you write so much, go back and give it give a little run up. But I'm I'm doing a sort of a micro version of that where I'm handwriting one day then typing it up the next and so it's sort of you know i'm rewriting each chapter as i as i go but i because i'm so big on theme and central dramatic arguments i'm i'm sort of know where i want my characters to end up and i'm having fun torturing them along the way (laughs) well it's it's fascinating as well because i know that over the last year or so you've talked about how you've changed and, and um you know you've mentioned this as well about from from going from more of a, a panther pants you know pants writing by the seat of your pants rather than a plotter but i think a lot of people misunderstand that in that mm. they think pantsing also means that you're just pantsing all the way and you don't know how it finishes no. but i think but but also thrown in there like stephen king has said as well isn't he and many times that 
he doesn't like to know how it ends until he gets there because it spoils it for him. It's almost like he's yeah. reading his own book. So there is this very, that's a really interesting thing to discuss about this idea of, you know, is it better? Because I, I do think it's better to have, unless you're a really good writer. I mean, Stephen King, he can obviously work out his ending really well. Um, but I think for people who are starting yeah. out, right? People <laughs> yeah, who are starting out, I think having, and, and really anyone else who's not Stephen King, um, I think it helps to have some degree of knowing where where you're heading, because otherwise you can end up just like literally, you know, driving around until you run out of gas or petrol. For me, it's uh, again, I bang on about this on the academy whenever we have craft coaching. Um, for me, it's about having uh, a thematic argument, um, and so and I write it in the front of every notebook, so I I come back to it every time. So there's my notebook for this one, and the thematic argument here. Uh, the theme for book four is silence the best way to move on from a terrible thing or must it be confronted risking the current peace all right so i this one is a it's a story about secrets it's about people who've got secrets that they've not told anyone else and now it's time to confront them and that which is quite dark actually when you start getting it i mean some of them are, are, are a bit but basically everyone in the village has a secret and the secrets are all going to be exposed and it's uh and i know how i want the story to end and i and um but each chapter is about that argument so i kind of think okay i'm moving the story on the the events it's not just a series of events when the next event happens when the next bit of the plot comes along i challenge it with that argument and then so you have you that's my thesis and antithesis is it is it better to cover up secrets or is it better to talk about them even if it risks breaking the peace and sometimes that wins the argument sometimes that wins the argument you know uh but by the end there's a kind of synthesis uh, which is a melding of the two. And I think that's what makes for a satisfying story. So until I figure out what that synthesis might be, I don't feel qualified to write the story, if you know what I mean. I kind of think... Uh, and, of course, the writing of it is an exploration of all those ideas. Um, but what I found, certainly with the last couple of books, is it, it really makes it work as a whole. And, and on scripts as well. I'm doing it on scripts all the time now. I'm um, I'm putting together... a. TV pitch for the Woodville books and I'm breaking the crow folk into six episodes but each episode has to stand alone on its own and each episode needs to have that thematic argument running through it you know like uh, like a stick of rock so I'm trying to figure out what they are as well so it's um it's tricky because you've got to figure out what your story is about before you've written it but it really really helps me particularly if I ever get stuck well, it's about creating a framework around hmm. around you so that you can stay within those boundaries and keep focused. And I think part of the problem when it's t there are no kind of boundaries is we end up, you know, it's that classic thing like kids who are out of control. The reason that they, they're freaking out is there's no boundaries. They don't know where the boundaries are. So um, Put them in a cage. A <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it's something that no doubt we'll debate more down the road. But one of the other things that I found interesting, as Rachel said, that – what really changed everything for her was when she signed up for a course. And it's interesting mm. she said that because I think, <laughs> and I, I do think people can get, um, you know, they can get stuck in just the, the idea of writing being this solitary journey. And throughout my entire life, 
I've always had a book on the go, a course on the go. I've been learning, learning, because it's it's constantly, and hopefully people listen to this podcast to try to kind of build up their knowledge as well. But I love the fact that that it's so many of the big authors that we have on the show have said, you know, they, they did this course or they did this, they went to this college. or and it And it really does seem to be a moment where people start to take themselves seriously as writers, I think. And I think that changes everything. The other thing you get out of a course is a community. You know, that you'll have your peers on that course. It's something we see in the Academy and in the Bestseller Experiment group on Facebook. There's this wonderful community that, as we saw with Andrew Chapman at the beginning doing his write a book in 24 hours, everyone's rallied around him, you know. And, and what's lovely is a number of people have said, this is a great idea, but Andrew, you know, this is think about your mental health, think about yeah. your physical health, you know, take yeah. plenty of breaks. You know, they're all chipping in with with great advice. So it's, you know, courses like that, groups like that, it's not just about learning the craft. It's about finding your peers and mm. finding people you can talk to. And that was, again, at the Rachel's launch party, full of authors who hadn't seen each other for years, sharing stories and anecdotes and reassuring each other and you know it was it was lovely it was lovely to be there when i could hear them yeah well it, but it's also interesting as well isn't it because we're all i think it's like anything in life where you have where you find out that someone is doing the same thing as you whether it's supporting the same sports team or you know coming from the same place you know uh, you know in terms of where you grew up as soon as you're bonded you're instantly bonded by by something and writing is the same thing at the minute someone says yeah i'm a writer uh, everyone's like oh you're one of, one of us and it's like yes. almost this like unspoken <laughs> oh so you're one of those masochists as well that go through all the pain and and it's um but it but it's instantly bonding and that's what i love about you know about what we're doing with the academy it's like the fact that people are um instantly kind of pull together because they're all on the on the similar journey it's not the same journey obviously because he thought each author's journey is unique but um it's it's absolutely fascinating so yeah if you're not to anyone who's there struggling and struggling by themselves the the next step to take is to look for look for that community is to look for like-minded individuals the the thing about some of the online larger kind of online groups is that we hear that you know there's quite a lot of toxicity in some of the major groups and you know and, and people aren't kind of rallying for each other they're the arguments breaking out and there's a lot of kind of opinions and things um, we had um we had a deep dive of amanda scott and she mentioned a number that's the perfect size for a community it's about 150 people and i've forgotten that i um it's given some sort of name but basically the ideal size of a community is about 150 people mm. which is you know about what we've got in the kind of about what we've got in the BXP team, you know, it's just the kind of right size, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, you don't want it too big. It it, it just becomes you know a mass. Uh, uh, it becomes like background noise, like tinnitus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did you oh, know, I'm Mark? As well, you, you might not know this, but we've um, you know, just so people are aware, we've actually now got over forty hours of archived coaching on the academy 40 hours absolutely bonkers so there's a nice a ton of stuff um if you like if you like listening to mark and i uh, chat away like in these posts um we go a lot lot deeper and it's a lot more um structured it's, it's much, much yes. more structured yeah, we, obviously we're a lot more prepared <laughs> also if you 
if you like uh, the deep dives as well that we offer to patrons, and um, there's a new deep dive this week. I spoke to uh, the founders of Hobeck Books, Adrian Hobart, Rebecca Collins, who basically during lockdown decided to start their own publisher. And it's a deep dive into starting a publisher and keeping one running. Uh, but even if you don't want to start a publisher, it's a great insight into how those small publishers work. And um, one of many, 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 many deep dives available to patrons over yeah, on absolutely. Patreon. Exactly. So if you want to access those deep dives, all you have to do is go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, sign up as a patron, and you will get access to oh, hundreds of hours, I do believe now, of um, of extra deep dives, which are on specific topics. They're just interviews and specific topics. Um, with experts in their field um, on just about everything you'd ever want to know. So there's something for everyone there. Brilliant stuff. Mr. Stay, um, social media this week. Yes. How's everything going there? Lots of good stuff here. Um, so Rachel Howes, who is the partner of Andrew Chapman, um, she says, I finally finished the edit of The Porcelain Hand. I made the decision to use the author name of R.R. R. Howells. Hopefully it will be heading to beta readers in the next couple of weeks. I want to have a read through first. But she set up a new Twitter account and I'm in the process of creating a new website for R.R. R. Howells too. Uh, now all I need to do is bag my dream agent. Easy as peasies that have been squeezied by lemons. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I've heard a lot of people are getting back on Twitter, Mark. It's kind of some yeah. stuff happening this week. I heard that yeah. 30, they've had 30 million new uh, accounts. Uh, how many of those are real? I don't know. But um, yeah, there's been a bit of a boom. I'll be, I'm going to be very fascinated. I've just finished reading Elon Musk's biography, which was finished mm. in 2015. So there's been a whole lifetime of stuff happened since then. Yeah, I'm blimey. very curious well, as to what's going to happen when Mr. Musk takes over at Twitter. Well, it's funny. I I interviewed Joanne Harris on the day it was announced. Uh, so we got an in- yes, we got an episode with Joanne Harris coming, folks. Staying, staying. And Joanne is a great tweeter. She's a big not- tweeter, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, how do you feel about that? And she said, well, as long as the block button stays, I'll be fine. So <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is what you make of it. So yeah, yes. Uh, so go go follow Rachel R R Howells over on Twitter. That will be. Uh, she's already putting some great stuff uh, online there. Um, Kate Baker in the academy. Kate Baker said, "I'm feeling frivolous. Uh, I've today I've submitted Made of Steel, which is a suffragette historical novel, to the first novel competition with Daniel Goldsmith Literary Consultants. Uh, it won't get anywhere because it's not highbrow enough." but it feels just good to send it. Kate, how dare you? It's a brilliant book. I've read it. I've had the pleasure of reading it. Um, but she said, I'd die with happiness if it ever made a long list. Uh, but before I do die with happiness, I've also entered one of my short stories, The Marsh Hound, based on a Suffolk myth about a black wolf type thing, into lunate.co.uk, who are looking for short f- fiction for their first ever print collection. They've done seven years of online, so why not send them something too? I mean, Kate, Keep listening to the podcast. I know you do listen to podcasts, Kate, because over the next coming coming weeks, we've got at least two or three um, authors that I've interviewed who've made the big time. Who ent- I interviewed one this morning who entered a competition at like the 11th hour, was in two minds about it, and now her book is a Richard and Judy choice for this summer. Whoa. So, you know, it's... <laughs> It does, co- it, yeah, it does, it does happen. Yeah, it does happen. You've and got actually, to be—you've got to be in it to win it. You do have to. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to buy the lottery ticket. I mean, the odds are a lot, a lot less, a lot lower of winning a book competition than there is than winning the lottery. So if you buy lottery tickets, you should definitely be doing it. But one of the interesting things actually is people don't know this as well. Um, 
in the in the academy in the newsletter we send out each week um there's a lot of information about these very competitions in fact we've had a couple of our academy members who have entered those competitions having seen it posted on our on our newsletter and um and had major success with it so yeah do not underestimate the power of submitting your work to one of these because you just never know what might happen. So yeah, and I can't wait to hear those interviews, Mark, as well. It sounds fascinating. We asked people to uh, get in touch about their favourite bookshops. We've had people getting in touch. Gavin Smith uh, says, uh, these guys have just opened up in Woking. It's a small shop, but they've got a lovely cafe. The books are well curated. The staff are lovely and they order in anything you don't have very quickly. They also run events, including Dungeons and Dragons events. It's a nice place to go and chill with tea and a bun. And it's called the Lion's Heart Bookshop in Woking. And it looks absolutely brilliant. It's so wonderful to see new bookshops opening up uh, and um, yeah so if you're in the Woking area which is uh, you know a science fiction hub actually got all it's where you know it's where HG Wells used to live they've got they've actually got a Martian tripod in the middle of town if you want to go and check that out wow. so do check out Woking Shell Vest got in touch she said when I was in my teens there was a little used bookshop downtown called the Book Deli the owner was an older gentleman named Max. He seemed grumpy at first, but he loved when kids wanted books. And he would often look at a stack of books I thought would cost me 10 or $15 and claim there was a special discount that day and only charged me half price. The adults never got the same discount. <laughs> and often throughout my teens, whenever I needed books for school paper research and bought a ton of Poe and Christie and Shakespeare and King over the years. I love that we all have this common love of old bookshops and have this kind of shared nostalgia. I know that smell. I can see the stacks in my mind stretching up to the dark ceiling like monoliths of secret knowledge just waiting to be found. Oh, shall oh, I love that. I Brilliant. love that. That sounds like a piece of literature in itself. <laughs> exactly. And we salute Max and all the Maxes of this world. Definitely. Who, uh, who give discounts to kids. That's brilliant. I, I love it. So keep, keep sending them in, folks. We want to hear about your favourite bookshops. And your favourite book bookstop uh, bookshop owners, I think we should we should increase it because yes. I think I think there's probably a lot of people out there that have had experiences of of bookshop owners um, just delighting in in getting books to kids. So yeah, any other stories, much much uh, very welcome as well. So Mr. Stay, I hope you have a fantastic week this week. Uh, it's going to be. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's May. This will be coming out in the early May. Spring is springing again and uh, all of our friends down down under are obviously getting their, their woolly sweaters out, I guess, at this time. <laughs> Wherever you are in the world and whatever the weather, we hope we hope that you have an amazing writing week. week. And like we said before, if you'd like to get um, uh, like to support this podcast, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you would like to get more of us, the two marks and coaching plus courses and access to hours and hours of uh, archive coaching as well, pop over to the academy at academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. And Mr. Sace, people can find us on socials. They can indeed. Uh, find us on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. And please give us a rating wherever you're listening to this. Now, um, Tracy Montague over on Patreon, because you can listen on Patreon, you can listen on the Patreon app. Uh, she was saying, oh, I can't rate you on Patreon. I don't think you can. So feel free to pop over to I don't know, 
Apple Podcasts and give us five stars there instead. Why not? Um, uh, and subscribe as well. Hitting that subscribe button makes all the difference too. Thank you as always to our editors, uh, Dave and JD, uh, because they've got some work to do this week. <laughs> They certainly do. They absolutely do. We like to keep you on your toes, chaps. And on top of that, don't forget, folks, we have a weekly bestseller experiment newsletter where we talk about all the things that you will learn from the most recent episode of Bestseller Experiment and how you can find all different ways that you can listen to and watch it on YouTube now as well. So pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter button in navigation, put your email address in, and we will send you that newsletter so mr stay have a fantastic week sir hope you have a great week and um, we look forward to hearing all of your stories do do get in contact we love to read all of your emails and until next week folks it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two tatty bye bye You muted yourself there. Why was that? I was trying to get some information about oh, okay. John Albans. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't get in time. I thought you were going to talk longer. It's like, bollocks. No, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Oh, dear. But you have lots of outtakes. I said, we hardly have any. Because most of what we do is us waffling on... I know, it's all outtakes. It's just <laughs> exactly. one big outtake from start hour. to finish. Anyway, right, let's get on. All right, right. three, two, one.